welcome to The CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, Croc Institute Associate Director for Alumni Relations, Anne Hayner, talks with 2014 Croc Institute Master's alums, Ketty Anyeko, a current PhD student at the University of British Columbia, and Lindsay McLean Opio, the Director of Development and Partnerships for Generations for Peace in Washington, D.C. They discuss reparations and justice for women survivors of war in Uganda, youth and peace building, and how each of them chose to study peace and where it's taken them. This is one of a number of episodes recorded during the recent Building Sustainable Peace Conference that took place at the Kroc Institute in November 2019. I am Anne Hayner, Director of Alumni Relations at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, here with two of our fabulous alumni, Lindsay McLean Apio, who is Director of Development and Partnerships and U.S. Representative for Generations for Peace, and Keti Anyeko, who is a Ph.D. candidate focusing on women's studies at the University of British Columbia, where she's also a Vanier Scholar. So welcome back to Croc after your time <laughs> Thank you. away. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here for the Building Sustainable Peace Conference as one excuse to get together with you. So wanted to just start with a little bit of background about what drew you here. Where did you come from when you originally came to Croc? And how did you how did you get interested in peace studies? And, and how did Croc and studying peace come on your horizon? Maybe we'll start with you, Kitty. Thank you. Before I came to the Croc Institute, I had worked in northern Uganda, in Golo, where I came from for about 10 years, I think. And most of the work that I was doing there was around peace building, basically, and advocating for justice and peace for the communities that were affected by the Lord's Resistance Army rebels' conflict with the Uganda People's Defense Forces. So all along, I had wanted to find a program that would help me understand the interest, concerns, and needs of my communities that were emerging from conflict. Having worked there for all that time, it was really hard to find solutions to some of the problems. And when I heard about the Croc Institute, I felt like, okay, I think this is a perfect MA program to do to help me address some of these concerns. So that's how I ended up applying and coming here. I um, really owe my being here to Dr. Rosalind Hackett who was a fellow here at the Kroc Institute, I think about 15 years ago. And she was my mentor and advisor during my undergraduate days at the University of Tennessee. So she helped take this interest that I had in the arts and the global South and how people can have a voice through the arts and turn it into a peace studies undergraduate program at a university that did not have a peace studies program. So she um, first had told me at that time about the master's program here at the University of Notre Dame and advised that after I graduated, if I got a little bit more work experience, that this could be a good path for me. So I graduated from the university there in 2009. She also is the one that first took me to northern Uganda Mm -hmm. after my freshman year at the university. So I was going back and doing research on the arts and peace building in northern Uganda. And when I graduated, I bought a one-way ticket and got a job working at the same organization as Keddie the Justice and Reconciliation Project. And that was, I think, 2010, maybe, yeah. Up to 12. So 
Keddy and I had the pleasure of working together for a number of years in the same very small organization and actually hosted Croc master students as interns and supervised some of them and got to know Susan and other faculty. And lo and behold, we were both applying for the master's program at the same exact time. And the Croc decided to take both of us the same year. So we actually found out we were both coming here together after we'd already applied and been accepted. Yes. Um, so it's it's great. Like this is now five years, I think, since we've graduated. And I mean, we've crossed paths since then, but life has also taken us in different directions. So it's like a homecoming and a reunion mm-hmm. to get back together with Keddie and to see so many of you here this week. I didn't even know some of that backstory. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> the chances of that happening. Is there a particular insight or memory that you can think of from your time in at Croc or from learning peace studies that really has stuck with you? Something that made a difference or, or remains with you so from classes, from your classmates, from teachers, anything? So when I was here, I was on the CAT track, so the Conflict Analysis and Transformation track, which may or may not still be a thing, <laughs> but it was with Bernie and Julie, Julie McFarlane and Bernie Mayer. And that class taught me a lot about how to mediate and transform conflicts in everyday life. And I'd say that that is what has really stuck with me, the fact that conflict and violence, yes, can mean protracted civil war, like inter and interstate conflict, but it also can mean conflict in your everyday life. And that the practice of peace studies is also very applicable to that. And I'll give you a quick example of how I'm kind of applying that now. Just before coming here for this conference, I was in Los Angeles, and I'm helping to scope for Generations for Peace, a pilot program and a partner for a peace-building program with young people in L.A. So one of the questions I was asking all of these people that I was meeting with is, what are issues of conflict and violence here in Los Angeles? And I found that people kept pointing me to certain communities where there's the highest rates of physical violence. But my training here at Croc enabled me to push back respectfully and say that I'm not just wanting to know about, you know, where the highest number of homicides or where is the gun violence most prevalent, but what are the everyday issues of conflict and violence that you all are dealing with here in Los Angeles? That's great. That's a great example. Keddy, do you have anything that stands out for you? Yes. Of course, so many things stand out for me, but I just want to speak to one. I remember learning about the, actually, Lindsay and I were in the same cut track as well. But one thing that stood out for me was the concept of elicitive peace building that I learned from John Paul Lederach's classes. The reason why that was so important to me was because coming from the grassroots, where we work with, you know, people who are at the bottom of the society, who are often not listened to or considered voiceless people, people who cannot express themselves especially the women who had experienced sexual violence in northern Uganda that I was working with, I found this concept very important in the sense that we would have to actually try and just listen to these women, you know, tell their stories, tell their versions of what they think justice is, what they think peace is, what they think needs to be done instead of people at the civil society organization levels or the local leaders or government leaders being the ones to speak for them. And I have actually been able to put that into practice right now because even when I went back to Uganda after graduating, 
I worked for a grant-making institution. While working there, I was still doing the same kind of work with the same categories of women. What helped me there was this was a grant-making institution that already has its set, you know, programs. We want to fund these. We want to fund livelihoods for women who have experienced sexual violence, and this is how we want it done. But when I got there, you know, having learned all these concepts from the Croc Institute, I'm like, no, as much as we are a funding agency, we need to listen to the people. We need to listen to the women and include their perspectives on what they think can change their lives. So we actually, I remember actually Lindsay and I worked... You know, we've been working together very we closely. We always find ways to come back to one another. <laughs> very clever and tricky. Yeah, we had an interesting theory of change in one of the projects about livelihoods. I'm not sure I'm going to recall it very well, but Lindsay could because she did write that proposal. It was about, I think, that if women are given livelihoods and are empowered economically, they would be able to pursue justice because the obstacle of poverty and inability to meet their basic needs will have been removed. Was it that way? Yeah, yeah. the (laughs) fact that like when your basic needs are met, then you're able to advocate more fully for reparations and justice because you're not worried about where your meal is coming from and how your kids are going to school. And we actually developed that proposal together. That's wonderful. That was in the NGO management class. Yes. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yes. Practical outcomes. Yes. Yes. That's wonderful. (laughs) That's great. So curious, many of the students that come through the program or are thinking about the program are curious about what people do afterwards. And so you mentioned a little bit about what you did after you graduated and going back to work in Uganda. But maybe you can both say a little bit about how you moved from being here at Croc, and you gave a little background before that, to then what you did afterwards and sort of highlights of how you got to where you are now. And then we can come back for more details about your work, but just sort of the big picture of what did you do when you left and were there transition points? Yeah, thank you very much. So for me, I had actually gotten this job before I even graduated. I got offered the job somewhere in April and graduation was in May and they wanted me to start the job on May 1st. Oh my gosh. So I negotiated with them and they were willing to you know, let me first finish, then I would start the job. So I gladly actually just went back to northern Uganda to start the job. So, of course, we worked on a number of projects. It was a a holistic kind of intervention that looked at the economic element of women's recovery and reintegration. It looked at the legal element, particularly the pursuit of justice. It looked at the psychosocial, and it looked at the, I think, medical and policy, no legal and policy, and then medical. Mm-hmm. So there were various partners working on all these initiatives. We had envisioned trying to solve the problem of one woman who was abducted and spent five or eight years in rebel captivity holistically by looking at all these elements of her reintegration mm-hmm. life once she leaves the rebel group and return home. So in trying to implement this approach in working with so many partners, I think we are over 20 different organizations. So as we worked together, we started learning that I think we started implementing the programs at a certain level without proper planning. So we had to work retrospectively. The idea was to have a particular woman in a particular place get many of these services. But we found that some of the organizations are working in Gulu, others are in Soroti, in eastern Uganda, others are in West Nile. And then we are like, how are we going to holistically support these women if 
different services are reaching different people. And some of the things we learned in house class, actually, the NGO management class was very practical, especially here in terms of project planning and management. We had to start looking back, how do we get to have all these organizations focus at the same areas? It was, I left three years into the project to go to UBC, the University of British Columbia, to start my PhD. But by the time I was leaving, having implemented some of these things, one key lesson that I learned from that partnership with over 20 different organizations handling different things in the greater northern Uganda was that we were not understanding the exact needs of the women. You know, we weren't because we always had the assumption, okay, she was, her rights were violated. She needs formal justice. You know, she needs, the man who forced her into this relationship has also returned home, needs to be prosecuted. But we were wrong. You know, we were wrong. So I learned all of it as because we are like, okay, there are organizations providing legal support, but the women were hardly cooperating in terms of wanting to engage in the legal element of the intervention. I remember one time when the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, I think Ben Suder, came to northern Uganda and met with us, the civil society groups. One thing that I mentioned to them was we actually don't know the kind of justice the women want because even if we keep saying, oh, they need the law, they need this, but they're not willing to cooperate with the legal institutions that are working to ensure they find justice. So when I applied to this PhD program, it's an interdisciplinary program at UBC, I learned that I could actually develop the PhD myself because it's a very flexible PhD. They let you design what you want to study, however you want to study, whichever disciplines you want to work with. So I'm like, this would be a perfect way for me to try and unpack some of these challenges that are emerging in the field, like our lack of understanding of what justice or reparations or peace looks like for these women. So that is how I ended up focusing my PhD proposal and research on the issues of women decision making after wartime sexual violence in northern Uganda, particularly looking at the senses, you know, of justice and reparations. And that's what I'm currently working on. That's great. And so so interconnected with so many different issues. It's a very complex one, perfect for interdisciplinary approach. That's fabulous. Thank you. And how about you, Lindsay? I know that Uganda has been a major part of your life. <laughs> so yeah, I've spent most of the last 12 years of my life living in northern Uganda. As I mentioned before, when I graduated from university, bought a one-way ticket, started working with Keddie at this organization that supported community-based transitional justice. And my time at CROC was almost like right in the middle of this 12 years. Mm -hmm. So before CROC, I was working on communications for the organization. After CROC, I actually took up Keddie's old job to head the gender justice department. <laughs> um, so it all came full circle. And I spent close to two years leading this amazing team of women that were kind of supporting a network of over 500 war-affected women who were coming together to advocate for justice and reparations for what they went through. And that involved quite a lot of different research and consultations. And I got um, really involved in doing some studies on the reparative justice needs of children born out of conflict sexual violence, together with the International Center for Transitional Justice out of New York. So it's just doing really interesting things. But the end of 2015, it reached a point where I felt like, ah, 
I don't know what's next, but I think it's not this. And I don't know if that might resonate with people that sometimes you're on this path and then all of a sudden you just feel like, I wasn't expecting this to be over, but I think it needs to be and I need to pursue a new direction. So I was open at that point to moving geographically. I feel like at that point I'd been in Uganda for a long time and maybe it would be important to get another comparative experience. So I started applying for different jobs, and within a couple of weeks, I landed on this position with Generations for Peace in Jordan in the Middle East, which was not on my like radar. <laughs> and on my path, I was not on the path to go live in the Middle East, but had a very um, supportive partner that was like, yes, let's go and do it. So I spent a year working for this organization, and I appreciate we'll get into more of the specifics later. But it was initially a grant writing role which doesn't sound very sexy or attractive, <laughs> but it actually brought together so many of my skill sets that I had been developing over the years in communications, in research, in program design and management, and some in kind of grant writing, and enabled me to get into this really like young and dynamic and growing organization that was doing peace building all over the world and helped shape those programs that youth were implementing. And after a year with them in Jordan, I also reached a point where it was like, okay, I don't think I want to stay in Jordan, but I really want to continue working for this organization. Mm -hmm. And that opened up a really interesting conversation with them where we agreed that I could go back to Uganda for two years and work remotely for some personal reasons under the kind of path and plan that I would then move to the United States in 2019 and open a U.S. office for the organization. So that's kind of where we're at today. Again, I never thought I'd move back to the U.S. Um, I think if you would have talked to me during my croc days, that was not in my plan. But I remember waking up in November 2016 after the U.S. elections in Jordan and seeing on social media a lot of my, my very progressive friends were saying, you know, I'm leaving the United States. This is terrible. I'm not going to live under this. And I felt for the first time that maybe it was time for me to come home and that there was a lot of work to be done in this country. And then I felt like that calling in that pool a little bit. So I moved back to the U.S. over the summer, and I've had the pleasure and privilege of opening Generations for Peace's first-ever U.S. office in Washington, D.C., and we're situated in the hub of the peacebuilding community with the Alliance for Peacebuilding and Partners Global. That's been probably the best decision we've taken mm -hmm. because it helps us really understand what the discourse is in this country, what some of the policy decisions are. I've gotten involved in policy advocacy on youth peace and security. And maybe most exciting of all to me is that I've been able to help shape some of our first U.S. programs in Los Angeles, which is still at the very beginning stages, but also in Chicago. So all that to say, you don't know what your path is going to look like, you know, three, five, ten years down the line. But if you continue following projects that interest you, doors are going to continue to open. Mm -hmm. And it's just been a really interesting journey that I've been on. And I don't know where I'm going to be five years from now, but I'm really enjoying where I'm at right now. That's great. It makes me think as hearing both of you talk to it's sometimes there's questions that come up that on a very simple level, people talk about whether students return home after the project, mm -hmm. after, you know, they studied peace studies. And you can think, you know, on a broad theoretical level, it's like you don't want to encourage brain drain and you want to bring the best and the brightest from all over the world, but you want people to also go out other places. But I think this shows some of the complexities, and I've become aware over the years that there's not clear definitions of sometimes what it is to return home. Sometimes 
you know, home can be someplace different than where you grew up, as the case. So like, yes. how would you define is Tennessee or Uganda more home? I mean, maybe both equally in some ways. And also that you can go out to other places to do more work on the issues of home, like in your yeah. work in the PhD program, Caddy, you know, where you're focusing so intensively on things that are your home issues, but you happen to be in a different location because that's where you can do that. So I've heard that sometimes from alumni, too, that they go to different places to do the work of home in a different context. So maybe you can say a little bit more about your work in the PhD program and how that's focusing. I think it's focusing particularly, as you mentioned, on the women and their experiences after their time in captivity with LRA and then what they face when they come back into the community and what they need. Maybe you could say a little bit more about the particular challenges there and have you come up with anything that gives you new insight on how that should be approached? Thank you. These women are women who are usually abducted at the ages of maybe 8 to 16 years and taken away from their homes, you know, kept as wives to rebel commanders. Some of them stay for two years or even one month, but some of them stay for up to 15 years, depending on how lucky they are to escape and return home. Usually they're abducted when they're about 8 years or up to 16 years, and they are taken away from home, held as captives for anywhere between two, five, eight, up to 16 years. And when these women return home, usually they escape, actually. Very few scenarios. I've just heard recently when I was doing my fieldwork in Uganda that some of them were actually released by their rebel husbands because they had children and they wanted them to return home to raise the kids because the environment in the bush was becoming very hostile. I've had only very few stories, but majority of them actually usually just escape to return home. So when they return home, having been taken away as a child, you know, a girl child, away from your mother or your father or your family, you know, your siblings, you grow up you know, into a woman somewhere in the bush in South Sudan or in the bushes of northern Uganda, and you return home 10 or 15 years later, life is totally different for them. Everything is new. Actually, some of them were telling me that they had never seen money, especially the Ugandan money. When they were given money, they never knew how to use it because they did not have it when they were in, you know, rebel captivity. So some of the challenges that they face, one big challenge, one of the biggest challenge, actually, actually, is the issue of the children that they had when they were there with the rebels. Because they were forced to have these kids when they were still very young. You know, some of them say they had the first child when they were like 13 years, 14, you know, some 16 when they had the first child, not knowing they were even pregnant in the first place, you know. Very horrific, you know, experiences and stories they will describe for you. So these kids, when they return with at home, first of all, they are seen as they are not acceptable children culturally in my actually tradition because when you're born in the bush, you know, like you're not supposed to be born in the bush because bushes have evil spirits, you know, have all kinds of bad omen. So for many families to actually accept these children has been a big problem. So the women have faced rejection for them and their children that were born out of this forced relationship. Some of them, the fathers of these kids remain in the bush to date, have never returned. Some of the men returned home, received blanket amnesties, but rejected 
the responsibility of continuing to raise these children or to continue the relationships with these women. Few cases returned and are continuing to live together to date. But the issue of their children still remains a big part of their challenge because I think I mentioned this a bit yesterday in my presentation that the issue of their identity, and I'm sure Lindsay knows this because they wrote an article with the International Center for Transitional Justice on this, is that when they were in the bush, the men changed their names. The women did change their names as well for protection of their identity when they ever come back home, issues of responsibility for wrong. So they changed their names and the change of names made it hard for women who returned to look for the paternal clans of their children that were born from there because they didn't know the exact names. They never knew the homes of these men, you know, where the villages are. So that meant they are just around town or in the villages or in the camps for those who returned when people were still in the IDP camps with the children, not knowing where to take They're them. They're like nameless children. Exactly. Homeless. Yeah, nameless, no, homeless. No community. Exactly. And to the children, you know, right now, actually, a number of them have grown up. Some of them are 20 years. You know, I know of one who is 22 years, others are 18, you know. Some of them have been lucky to get to university, but many of them end up you know, in high school, when their moms struggle with them to pay school fees and they can't really, you know, take them up to university level and then they stop there, which brings me to the other challenge of the poverty that the women are experiencing. They can't afford the school fees. They're not employable because they were taken away from school, did not have the chance to study, to be able to get the good jobs. So they basically run small-scale businesses, roadside businesses to sell and get small monies here and there. And the other challenge is land. They lack land and housing for them and their children that they returned with because they're being rejected. Some of them returned and found when all the parents are killed. And so where do you go? You know, they had nowhere to go. Social stigma. There are just very many, actually. If I'm to keep talking about all of them, I could spend the entire afternoon. But also social stigma still remains a very big part of their challenge. They are called all kinds of names. They are called Cony. So Cony is the name of the rebel leader himself. So anyone who was previously part of the group would be called So, meaning you are a rebel. They are called Duokchen Pajo. Duokchen Pajo means those who returned home. It's used in a very condescending way. It's not used in a good way. But also the other interesting thing is some of the women have found a way of making jokes out of such names. For instance, when they are called Dwokchen Pajo, for them, they see it as something that it's, you know, in Uganda, it's prestigious to travel abroad. Like I flew and came into the U.S. for this conference. Like it's a nice thing to do. So the women were abducted from Uganda and taken to South Sudan, right? South Sudan, you already crossed the border of Uganda. So they say when they returned from captivity, they also came back from I'm abroad, abroad. right? <laughs> so it's, it's been one way for them to joke about the issue, you know. Well, it is a name-calling thing that makes them, they hate the name Dwokchen Pajo, but they're like, well, we returned from abroad and we traveled without passports. <laughs> Repackage it in their own in their own terms. Exactly. It's so, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. It's really empowering. So both of you really have focused on various elements of victim-centered transitional justice and looking at how that works in, particularly in the case of Uganda. Can you say anything more about what kinds of processes are needed or what what are the key factors that need to be taken into consideration in that context? 
Well, one of the things when Kedi was talking that I was remembering, there was a very like eye-opening experience for me when I was doing this work. So I was doing this research on the reparative justice needs of children born out of conflict sexual violence, many of whom were children born in, in LRA captivity. And I remember we were doing a focus group with some of these young people at a, a location in Gulu. And the end of the day was upon us, and we were all going home. And one of the top rebel commanders, who was wanted by the prosecutor for the Ugandan government, but was being harbored by the Ugandan military, showed up at the location of our focus group. So it was one of the fathers of these children. And I immediately like started panicking, like, you can't be here, you know, like, I also, I didn't want to burn a relationship with him because the father's perspectives were important in this research. And they were being quite cooperative and talking with us. But also, we had not invited him to this mm. day. And like, you know, he can't show up. The children are here and some of the women are here. One of our colleagues essentially told me, like, you need to calm down and let it go because the mothers and the children invited him here. They've not seen him in a long time. And they're actually going to go and stay at his place on the military barracks. So I had to kind of just let it go. And it felt really scary to me. And like, this is wrong. This is not black and white. This is a whole lot of gray. And I'm not comfortable mm. with that. And like watched as they literally walked into the sunset, him and a couple of these children, which were teenagers, and some of the women, and then one of the women's mothers. And like the young people were pushing his bicycle, and they were just talking and laughing, and it was like a reunion, much like we're having this week here for the conference. Mm. And I realized then that in situations like this where you have conflict and violence and war, as an outsider, it's easy to th see things as black and white, that this is good and bad and this is right and wrong. But when you live through this, it's so much more complex than that. And you have to be comfortable living in all of these shades of gray in between. And as an outsider in this context, just listening to my counterparts and my colleagues that are from there, or like listening to the women and the children, that it was okay with them, so it had to be okay with me. So I don't know if that wasn't the question you asked, no, but I just was, wanted to share that that's, example. That's fascinating, yeah. the illustration of how, yeah, we're much more comfortable thinking there's one side and the other. There's just, you know, yeah. choose between them. Yeah. This is right and wrong and just and unjust, but it's, it's yeah. really hard to have those gray areas in the middle. And I think with the types of justice processes that are trying to be instated in Uganda that are largely coming from the West, um, the International Criminal Court and the, the court system, it looks at things as black and white victim and perpetrator. And that is not how the society there, by and large, views what happened. So until the justice and reconciliation processes can like account for all of those variations and that mm -hmm. spectrum, it's going to be really hard, I think, to meet the needs and the desires of victims and survivors in the context. That's great. I'm sure you've witnessed some of the same tensions and gray areas that have come up in your research and your, as well as your own personal experience there. Yeah, definitely. You know... Again, as I mentioned earlier on, that we usually have the assumption that we know really what the war-affected communities want, but actually most times we don't, you know, which is why I still return to the elicitive, you know, peace-building approach that John Paul talks about, because it's important to usually ask the people what 
they want and what they think works for them. And one interesting thing that I've been in Uganda for five months, maybe almost six now doing my field work. And one important thing that has emerged out of the research is that of the about 60 women that I've spoken to, you know, none of them has asked for the formal legal kind of justice as a justice that they want. You know, even when you ask questions that are close to, you know, sometimes very, you know, directive questions, but no. One of them did speak about the court, the trial of one of the former LRA commanders, Thomas Koyelo, that is currently ongoing in Uganda. She mentioned it in a complaining way. That imagine, look at Koyelo, for instance. The trial has been going on for seven years. We have got nothing nothing out of all these, you know, trials. And we are all here struggling with the children, you know. So that tells how how less the value they put on former prosecutions are. Many of them are looking for a livable kind of justice, an everyday kind of justice. They need land. Actually, nearly all of them have said they need land. For them, that is what would mean justice. That is what would mean reparations for them. Land is very important to them because they, remember I mentioned earlier on, they've been rejected. They don't have housing. So they're like, if I have land, I can build a house, live there with my children that have been rejected, start my own kind of clan, raise the kids there, till part of the garden and get food, sell some of the produce and take my kids to school. You know, like they can explain. Yeah, very, very creative. But it still remains a challenge on how some of these needs of the women are going to be addressed. And some other issues they've mentioned is they need recognition from the government as Ugandan citizens, you know, as human beings, because many of them spent so much time in Sudan. So when they returned home with all this rejection and the challenges they're facing, they feel they're not being viewed as citizens of Uganda. Actually, their children have had a challenge being registered and being issued the national identity cards that were being given in Uganda because you need a proof of clan, like your birth certificate needs to list who your father is, which clan he comes from. And many of them did not have that. So it has really been a very big thing for them to the point that some of them feel, okay, I think for me, my kind of reparations or my kind of justice is actually to be recognized as Ugandan, you know, or for government to offer some kind of apology because we were abducted when they were seen, they were here, they could have protected us. So for me, unless I get that kind of apology, Some of them would ask from the government, some of them would ask from the men whom they were with in captivity. That's when they would feel some kind of relief and some form of justice. It has been a various, you know, it's a range of responses from many of them, but those are the common ones. Oh, yeah, and the other common one was compensation, right? They need compensation from the government for the time they wasted in captivity, for their lives that have been wasted. And they had this kind of saying that, it's an actually saying, penange. You know, it describes the issues of restorative reparations actually very nicely. It's directly translated as once oil pours on the ground, you cannot get all of that oil back into the container because some of it has already, you know, 
icon seeped into the ground. Exactly. So they're like, when we were abducted, we were young. We spent all these years in captivity. Mm-hmm. Even if we are given reparations right now, it's not going to completely put us back to our original state. We are now women in our 30s or 40s. But we still need that kind of reparation, that compensation, that will help us regain a bit of that oil that has been spilled on the ground. So what anyway, a powerful image. That's <laughs> wonderful. That's great. So, Lindsay, I just want to also follow up on, I know you've been working, you could say a little bit more about your work with Generations for Peace. Mm-hmm. I know you've been working on youth peace building initiatives, particularly focusing on that. And you were based in Amman for a while and then also in, in Uganda. But can you say something about the breadth of the work and, and what you've found is particular excitement or challenges in that work? Yes. So I work for Generations for Peace, which is a leading international peace building organization that's headquartered in Jordan. Yesterday, when I was giving my presentation, I asked people to raise their hand if they've heard of us. And only a few of my friends that were in the room raised their hand. So it tells me that we need to do a lot more of outreach and advocacy of our work. But we've actually been around for 12 years and have trained over 12,500 volunteer leaders of youth in 51 countries. And then they have been designing and implementing and evaluating activities in their communities to address local issues of conflict and violence. It's been really interesting to get into this youth-led peace-building world because I feel like in Uganda, where we were working, there was a lot of emphasis on gender justice, but there wasn't a lot being talked about about the role of young people. A little bit as you get into kind of children born in captivity and some of their needs, but not really young people writ large and how they're understanding and moving forward in a society that's been affected by conflict. With our work, it fits really nicely into UN Security Council Resolution 2250 on Youth Peace and Security, which in a lot of ways is what 1325 is to women, 2250 is to youth. It affirms the positive role of young people in peace processes, um, that they are not problems to be fixed in societies, but they are agents of change, and that they have a right to full and meaningful participation in peace building around the world. I've loved having you all among many other alumni here at the conference. So it's fabulous to have the chance to talk with you and hear a little bit more about your work. Thank Thank you you for joining us. Thank Thank you very much. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our show, which will help more people to find us. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.